0: Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Cello Sherpa Podcast. I'm Joel Dallow, your host, and I'm so excited to have Stephen Isserlis as our first guest. Stephen enjoys a unique and distinguished career as a soloist, chamber musician, educator, author, and broadcaster. If you visit his website, stephenisserlis.com, and that's Stephen with a V— It is packed with so many interesting links to his full biography, children's books he's written, the multiple cellos he performs concerts on, things he's enthusiastic about, his own editions and arrangements of pieces, his amazingly extensive listings of recordings, his concert schedule, which due to COVID is not what it normally is, but we'll come back to that topic, and even a link with multiple musical quizzes to test your knowledge, which personally I was afraid to attempt. When I'm not working a regular schedule, which particularly during this pandemic has been my life, I have recurring nightmares that I show up to play a concert and I'm always missing something like my pants, tails, shirt, shoes, cello, bow, and I'm often supposed to be on stage when I hear the A being given by the oboe, but I can't seem to find whatever it is I'm missing, and the sheer panic that sets in is way out of proportion from what would happen in reality. Does this happen to you? (laughs) All the time. Um,
1: yeah, I always have terrible nightmares, audiences walking out, I don't have the right music and I don't know if a memory or whatever, actually last night I had a very strange dream about my friend Stephen Huff, the pianist, whom I'm sure you know, and he was playing in South Africa or somewhere and for some reason I went to surprise him, to listen in the audience because he's a great friend of mine, and he was playing the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto, you know, boom, 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 boom. The piano he was playing on, the only grand piano on stage, had many missing notes. So after the first chord, he had to rush over to an upright piano that was sitting there and play the second chord on that. And then some other young man was sitting there at another upright, played the third chord, while Stephen ran back to the piano and played the first beat of the next bar. And so it went on. I remember I was killing myself. Even in the dream, I was laughing hysterically. And so was was
0: Stephen. <laughs> Does this happen to you when you're performing a regular concert schedule? Because I imagine yours has been lighter than usual also.
1: Yes, I think I had a few months maybe without those nightmares. I can't remember. I think I did.
0: And then they returned. In real life, I'm sure it would be helpful to know if you suffer from similar anxiety before you walk out on stage, or if you're just as cool as a cucumber because you're used to this now. I'm certainly not as cool as a cucumber. It depends very much whether I have the music there or
1: not. I have a phobia about memory lapses, and yet I keep playing some pieces from memory because I know it gives me an extra something, extra intensity, that fear. I don't enjoy it, but but I can see it has benefits. And it depends... I don't know. It'll be strange at the moment because I'm only giving like one or two concerts a month. So it's it's very different. I mean, in a way, you know, I've had a lot of time to practice for them, but then of course I'm not used to playing them. So
0: um, sort of mix bag that. Yeah, I think it's really, we all suffer from some of that stage fright. So it's it's nice to hear someone that's such a star like you are admit to what you have difficulty with when it comes to playing.
1: Yeah, I do suffer terribly from stage fright, but actually... On the whole, I don't like musicians who don't. If you see somebody coming out looking cool as a cucumber, you know, the music isn't usually cool as a cucumber. Cucumbers really have no place on stage. I mean, it's it's also a sense of responsibility to the music. I mean, that's a scary thing. You don't want to let the composer down. You don't want to let the audience down, the orchestra if you're playing with an orchestra. You don't want to let yourself down. It's a scary business and it should be. Cazals was apparently terrified before concerts. And I know my other great cello hero, Daniel Shafran, was absolutely crippled by nerves. And I
0: understand that. Can you talk a little bit about your your influences then?
1: Those are by far the biggest cello influences. But there are many others who are non cello Well, and of course, my teacher, Jane Cowan, was a huge influence. She was a cellist, but not really a performing cellist. And of course, my lovely American teacher, Richard Kapuczynski, I loved him. Casals is sort of the the god, the father, godfather of cellists. I mean, I I would go to Casals probably for the greatest music, especially Beethoven. But also, I mean, he's playing little pieces. Those old 78s he made are just exquisite. He's a miraculous player. He came from nowhere. And Shafran particularly, but not exclusively for Russian music. I just adore him. He's like a folk singer who plays the cello. He has that natural passion and elegance. And there's just no rules for him. I love that freedom of his playing. In terms of sort of teachers who really influenced my musical approach, apart from Jane Cowan, who was the the first and maybe the main one, but was Shandor Vague, the great Hungarian violinist and conductor, who started IMS Prussia Cove, which I'm now director. I played a lot of chain music with him and played to him and heard him teach a lot, that was a big influence. And even now, listening to his recordings of Schubert's symphonies and things, it's you know, I can hear those qualities and they reinforce it my playing what's well, his way he characterizes and shapes every phrase. So carefully and with such spirit. I love that. And then there's somebody whose 95th birthday is today, on the day which we're talking about. I have to call him when we're finished. Jörg Kurtag, the composer. And just I've, I've worked with him for so many years, um, mostly on his music, of course. Oh, the intensity he gives to music. The, the way he has of, of insisting that each note says something. Each note has this intensity behind it That's Wonderful. I've got so much out of it, and I adore him. And another person I adore, though he'd be furious with me for saying so, is Ferenc Rados, another Hungarian, who is a pianist and teacher and coach. And he's just a probing musician. I mean, he's got sort of x-ray vision into music. I mean, he just, you know, he sees behind the notes, behind the markings. He doesn't even take that much notice of composers' markings in a way. He sort of sees beyond them i take huge notice of composers markings and i get furious with people who ignore them but he's almost beyond that he looks at the shape of the piece and the and the structure and brings it out um in the most natural way in he's fantastic i love playing with him and then you know working with people well i worked a bit with radu lupu at the end of his career and i just love his playing and anders schiff particularly his Bach playing i think he's and i've he's they're both very good friends of mine i've I had a lot to do with them. And
0: so people like that, big influences. I can tell just the way you talk about your influences that that comes across so much in how you play yourself, that attention to detail and such exquisite musicianship. You just don't hear that with so many soloists today. It's really unique. Did you grow up in a musical family? I did. My grandfather was quite a famous pianist and
1: composer. He was born in Kishinov, Moldavia. But he was Russian, Russian-Jewish. And then my father was born in Odessa. And then they moved to Moscow because, well, my grandfather was actually professor for some time at the Moscow Conservatoire. Um, but then he left in 1922 because Lenin gave him permission to tour abroad six months with 11 other musicians. They were all allowed to take their families and tour abroad, but not one of them went back. So it's a bit of a disaster. Um, But anyway, my grandfather was one of those. And then he lived in Vienna till 38, when being a Jew in Vienna wasn't quite as enjoyable as it had been. And he came to England. He was very lucky with my father. And then growing up, my sisters are both professional musicians. Of course, they weren't when we were little, but they were already musicians by the time I remember anything. Annette, my elder sister, she then played the piano, but later she played the viola, which she does now, and she's in a she plays the viola a lot, but she also arranges and she's a producer and she's quite a figure in the British musical world. And then Rachel, my other my middle sister, she's a violinist, a very fine violinist. She lives in Germany now. And the dog sang with great passion. Yeah, it was a musical family. My mother was a piano teacher. So my father was a very keen amateur violinist. So, yeah, there was a lot of music
0: in my house. And what drew you to the cello? My parents.
1: Well, I mean, you know, with a, a future violist, I think we, we always knew Annette would be a violist, and Rachel, violinist, and my father, a violinist, my mother, a pianist, they needed a cellist. And also the local teacher, for some reason, said she would teach me free for a term. So as I said, we're a good
0: Jewish family. We weren't going to turn that down. And
1: that's why I am... Um, went to the cello
0: and how old were you when you started six six okay i was also six ah there you are six appeal and also same thing very musical family so i I understand Mm, i know your parents (laughs) so when you were a student what were your dreams and goals about music and did they materialize the way you envisioned them slowly yes i suppose
1: i dreamt of being a famous soloist going around the world and then they changed as i got all i mean of course i do like i love to play concertos but i do think of them as large scale chamber music and i always describe myself as a chamber musician who plays a lot of concertos but for me you know if i'm playing with the atlanta symphony for instance i'm very interested in how the solo oboe will shape a phrase that i then take over or solo clarinet or flute or whatever you know it is chamber music it's a it's a conversation between different voices and so also I play a lot of chamber music with a particular group of friends. I give recitals with piano and with forte piano, with harpsichord occasionally. And So I love to play music from Bach to contemporary music. You
0: know. It sounds like you go back a lot to chamber music being your roots. Did you realize the value of that when you were that age and how much that would relate to everything else you did in music? Well, I'm sure Jane Cowan drummed it into me, but I think it became increasingly clear
1: and in a way, yeah, sort of the best advice I got from an agent probably was my my former agent, Jasper Parrott, who said, I think that your chamber music series or your just series, you know, it can also involve orchestras around particular composers. That's going to be the making of you. I know where it was because... You know, I love to explore the composers' lives and their f- the music of their friends and their circle and everything, and then you know, doing series like that at the
0: Wigmore Hall and Salzburg Festival and places, and in New York, really made a difference. I think. So, if you were to go back to that age and give yourself advice, could you think about what advice you might give yourself as a as a young student?
1: Don't be rude to people. Don't be ob- don't be obnoxious. Unfortunately, I had this thing that if anybody could help me with my career. I must be rude to them because I mustn't suck up. And I deeply regret that, including many conductors I alienated and managers and things, which was really stupid. I do give people lectures now. (laughs) Don't blow it.
0: Don't be silly. You may have ideals and you don't want to compromise. You've got to compromise. You've got to live. That is really good advice. I know that one of the things that I realized in that vein is that the music world is so small. As you grow up through it, and you go to music camp, and then you go take an audition for an orchestra, there could be people that you went to camp with sitting on that committee deciding whether to hire you. Absolutely. Don't be horrible to people. There's no reason to be horrible to people, even if they're,
1: you know, even if they are obnoxious conductors, which there are some. There's a few. <gasps> um, you just be try and be polite, be restrained. let's see, like... One of my favourite young cellists these days is Fung. Thung, who I'm sure you know, or know of. I mean, he's just naturally polite. He'll do very well because he's almost too nice. I wish I'd had that natural politeness when I was young. And I also, I did sacrifice friendships on the altar of jokes. I could never resist jokes. Jokes for me are often insults. But I offended more people than I should have. I also had made very, very good close friends as well, of course.
0: Are there things that... Other professional cellists and educators do that annoy you without mentioning names. (laughs) Or you mean the way they play, or the what they say?
1: Well, either really. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain approach to playing which I think, from some of the most successful players, does annoy me hugely because it's me 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 playing instead of composer 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 playing. Yes, that does annoy me. But there's lots I really like too, and lots of my best friends actually are cellists. So there's a few I don't like, but very few. You know, it's got great, you know, of my age, a bit older. Now, some of them, unfortunately, no longer with us. Like Lynn Harrell was a great friend, but also Misha Meiski is a great friend. Ralph Kishbaum is one of my closest friends. Steve Doan, Thomas Demenga, Raphael Walfscher, I mean, many, many.
0: And there's some very young cellists I really like. I know this is a big topic for you, and you've launched yourself into such a big career. But without taking, I think, what? many of us would have considered the standard route, which is winning a big competition or something along those lines. And you've managed to build this incredible career. And and I think our audience would like to know how you've pulled that off, because I think it's unique the way that you've been able to do it.
1: I know. I suppose it is. Well, I didn't think I had any chance of winning competitions because, you know, I like to play on gut strings. I don't like to play... The sort of the accepted way. In fact, there was a competition. I sort of went in for a public competition, and I got knocked out in the first round in around 1980, and you know, very publicly and very humiliatingly. So after, and that was wasn't even a big international competition. But I was so upset, I never didn't try again. Um I realized my playing was not for competitions and the people who chucked me out were actually the cello professors with whom I'd not studied and I didn't play their way. But I think my career has really been made by my friends. Having said I offended some people, I also made some very great friends like, you know, I've been friends with 30 years or whatever Joshua Bell, Ollie Mustanen, people like that who just, you know, and I got to play with them and through them got to meet lots of people and I don't know. It just helped a lot. I was all, and they would recommend me to their agents. Or um, and there's some conductors I got on very well with too. And also, I think it also helped a bit that, in fact, I could play with original instruments because I do play on gut strings most of the time. Not at the moment, actually, because I'm playing Shostakovich concerto next week on steel strings. I could play that on gut, not on the Strad that I normally play. Would not enjoy being hit. So I was always very interested in early instruments and things. You know, and I played with John Elliott Gardner when I was young and his English Baroque soloists, and with Roger Norrington and the classical players. And more recently I played quite a lot with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And I maybe my favourite thing of all is to do the Beethoven cycle with Robert Levin on Forte Piano. And then also I love to play recitals with harpsichord, you know, Boccarini with harpsichord is a dream, I think. So on. So that also helped. So I had, and of course, working with composers like John Tavener, that helped a lot because we had that hit, The Protecting Veil, which
0: is good. And Thomas Addis and, of course, Kutak. All these things added up. Well, I think being true to yourself, too, is what what helps you there. Being true to the music and being true to what you believe and not trying to be somebody else or something else seems to have also been part of your story.
1: I suppose I didn't have much choice. (laughs) I had to be myself. Um, And also actually writing sort of helped. Oh, it suddenly helped in Japan because I went to Japan for a bit and I wasn't sure how well it was going. Then one time I went and everything was sold out. I thought, great, what happened? And they said, your book, was, your first book for children was published. Oh. Big difference, which is lovely because I just wrote that for fun, really, for my son. And you've written two of them, right? I've written two books for children and I'm then wrote a book for young musicians, Advice for Young Musicians. Great. With Schumann. Schumann is my co-author. And now I've written a book, which I'm just doing the final revisions, which is probably why I look so tired. Your audience can't see how tired I look. Uh, Doing final revisions on a book about the Bach suites, which should come out in the autumn, in the fall, as you would say.
0: Terrific. Well, I really appreciate your time. I I know we're on a tight schedule. So I want to ask, first of all, how you've managed through the pandemic what, what you've been able to accomplish and how you've been adjusting to that. Well, what have I done? I don't know. I mean, as soon as it came and I had like 100
1: concerts cancelled, I think. I don't know. I haven't counted. It must be about 100. I just thought we got to do it. it was quite, it's sort of, I mean, it was terrible because of all the tragic news and it was scary when we knew even less about the virus then than we do now. But, you know, it was sort of fun. We would sort of talk, you know, talk with Josh and Stephen Huff and people, what are we doing? And I just realised I had to set myself different goals. So I've learned some new pieces. I've edited the Dvorak concerto. I mean, I didn't edit, I sort of bowed and fingered the Dvorak concerto for Henley. That was one little project I probably wouldn't have, I might have had time for, but what I certainly wouldn't have had time for is the book about the Bach suites. That absolutely would not have happened had it not been for the pandemic it's still taking time just the revisions I'm driving the copy editor mad but I just want this book to be good yeah that would never have happened so one you know and I gave myself goals and I even made little sort of did little children's concerts from my music room for the kids who were stuck at home not at school and things like that I just kept giving myself so I've always every day has been busy since since the lockdown because I've always got goals that I've set myself or sometimes other people have set me, and you know. So I've written about it for my Facebook page. I think it's so important to have to have to give yourself these goals. You're you're going to learn a piece by this day, then you're going to make a video of it and sh- send it to somebody you respect or whatever. Yeah, it became quite nice actually. I would, during the first lockdown, i haven't done it this time. I would sort of make lots of video messages for people. I would just play a piece and send it to a friend and say. Too like this is and I made a even made a little Christmas card of a piece nobody knew and uh, sent it around and that side of it's been quite fun are you booking concerts yet for next season oh yes I mean God I'm t- the thing is I'm taking much too much I'm in the expectation that some of it's going to be cancelled but
0: if it's not cancelled I'm not going to be at home at all I mean it starts already in April but who knows? I know that people can find you, obviously, on your website at com. I know you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? I think it's at StephenIsraelis, very original. Is there anywhere else where people should be looking out for your… Facebook, I write. I don't write very often, but if I get inspired,
1: and it's usually sort of either in memory. Unfortunately, I've had to write too many memorials recently. Otherwise, it's often advice for young musicians like I did a couple for young musicians in the pandemic, because it you know, it's okay for me in a way that you know, I'm in my early sixties now, I've had something of a career, but God, those people who are caught suddenly either not able to study properly, or not or they were just starting to take off with concert and they all cancelled, and by the time they're up again, they just hope that another sort of somebody a few years younger isn't taking those concerts. I mean it's really, really tough. And I just only comfort is that people seem to need music so much at the moment. And we hope, you know, that when concerts come back, we'll get actually even bigger audiences because people realize how much they miss the concerts.
0: Yeah, I think people are realizing now that the Roaring Twenties happened because of the 1918 pandemic. And hopefully that means we're poised to repeat the Roaring Twenties all over again. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for the inaugural episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast and sharing your incredibly valuable insight with us. A pleasure. I'm very flattered to set it all off. Good luck with the rest of the series. Thank you so much for listening to our inaugural episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. We look forward to our next episode where we interview David Gaber, cello professor at Manhattan School of Music, about preparing for your college auditions, among many other topics. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast on whatever platform you listen to, so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and mostly edited by Joel Dallow, with some much-needed assistance from Mark DeClaudio at 3Wire Creative. You can find more information about them at 3, and that's the number 3, wirecreative.com.